This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Man, it was a very, very busy week. So much in the news and so much in the magazine. Over the next couple of hours, we're going to highlight some of the big stories of the week, bring you insights from the magazine, and so much more. On this week's show, we're going to take you to Australia, understand the implications of those bushfires there, the massive amount of area that they have encompassed, and what the tie is to climate change. Also take you to Venezuela, where they have too many dollars? Well, yeah. Go figure. That's a problem. It's a country with an economy that's crippled quarter after quarter of declines, stifling inflation. They've attracted a lot of dollars, but as a result, that has certainly created a problem. And speaking of problems, it's been a longstanding one for the Catholic Church. And this, of course, dealing with sexual abuse charges and claims and lawsuits. And what's interesting, they have kind of a two-pronged strategy when it comes to dealing with some of those suits. And as a result, those claims that are going out to victims, not as high as they might have been. It's a terrific piece of reporting, disturbing to say the Mm -hmm. least, but an important one for folks to understand. Plus, the hidden dangers of the great index fund takeover. You've got these funds in your 401k. It's this week's cover story. First up, though, let's begin with those ongoing tensions between the United States and Iran. For more on that topic, Jason, we spoke to economics editor Peter Coy. He took a look at that escalation strategy that President Trump is using with Iran, uh, taking us back into some history of similar strategies and how it really is a risky one, but it also has some rewards. It's a strategy he's used all his life. Uh, Trump is famous for saying, if somebody hits you, hit him back 10 times as hard. And it's worked pretty well for him in the world of business and politics. The question is now, will it work as well in the world of geopolitics? And, you know, so far, you could argue, so good. Right. Knocked off one of America's top enemies with relatively small repercussions. So far. Exactly, so far. And the question is, what happens next? Because Iran certainly has other ways it can get back at the United States cyber war, terrorism, and so on, as well as just more attacks in Iraq. Um, But then there's also the downside for the U.S. of the fact that Iran is pulling out of its uh, commitments under the nuclear deal. It's it's going back to enriching uranium. Uh, The turn of public opinion in Iraq, until very recently, the Iraqis were turning quite negative towards Iran, and now they're pivoting towards being Uh, wanting the U.S. to get out. The Iraqi parliament had a symbolic vote to tell the United States to go home. So, you know, it's definitely a mixed bag whether this kind of strategy works. Right. Well, and it's a geopolitical story. It's also a geoeconomic story in many ways. This complicates so many things when we think about trade, when we think about just the relationships between all these countries. This is a crucial economic part of the world. Well, for sure. Now, Trump would argue, and he did argue in his address to the nation, that the U.S. is self-sufficient in oil now, uh, close to it. We still have some imports of oil. But that does not mean that the oil market does not matter. It matters for all the other countries that are buying oil. And the United States remains sort of the world's policeman to some degree. And so it's a bad thing if suddenly the Strait of Hormuz is blocked, for example, by Iran and oil can't get out. What I think is interesting, and you really do look into this whole idea of the escalation strategy, you know, you write in this story that Trump, uh, President Trump is running into a dilemma that we've seen other U.S. presidents face, how to fight a foe who pokes and prods using asymmetric warfare. Right. This isn't your typical foe. That is fascinating. And you go back to Richard Nixon in, world, in the Vietnam War, 1970, 
That was when the U.S. was trying to decide what to do, whether it should go af, uh, after the Viet Cong bases in mm-hmm. Cambodia, which it did, expanding the war, enraging uh, U.S. peace activists. And what Nixon said at the time was he didn't want the U.S. to become a pitiful, helpless giant. That expression has gained currency, which still gets used today. Trump identically does not want the U.S. to be a pitiful, helpless giant. Right. It's also interesting, too, and and Peter, you've written about this before and you write about it again, that this is the United States in a different position in a very different world, and that Mm -hmm. also contributes to this asymmetry that we're seeing. There's not a lot of precedent for the U.S. acting in this way in a world that is like this. Well, the, you know, Trump is not your typical president, for better or worse. Uh, the, there are people who love this kind of strategy. They say, it's about time the United States stopped uh, using, treating other countries with kid gloves and, like, hit hard. And uh, I talk to people who think that this could work. It could create, a, have a deterrent effect mm-hmm. on further Iranian aggression. Uh, so I, the jury's out on this. And that's Peter Coy, our economics editor, taking a little bit of a political bent this week. It was the lead of the politics section and a reminder, candidly, and we talked about this with Peter, that politics and economics inextricably linked in many ways, especially because so much of the interest in the Middle East is ultimately economic, be it oil, be it just sort of economic strategy in many ways. Well, and it really gets to Jason bottom line that the president, President Trump, has positioned his moves against Iran as an attempt to really scare it into a more submissive stance toward the United States. But the result is, could possibly have that opposite effect. And that's the game that we're playing right now, or the United States is and the administration is. And I also think what's interesting about this is we always look back to history for precedent, history for comparisons. And yet, if there's one thing we have learned during the Trump administration is that history, past performance, as they say on Wall Street, is not a guarantee. (laughs) guarantee a future performance. And you do just wonder whether this time really is different. And the other thing I just want to get to is, and I think we have talked increasingly about these stories in the magazine, about the United States as a global player kind of backing off from the global stage. And you do wonder if ultimately U.S. forces are um, out of the area, out of Iraq in this case, what kind of power vacuum is left and who fills it if the United States is not there in some form or another. So this story has been front and center, Jason, no doubt about it. It's been in all of the news reports, but I also feel like the Golden Globes, you had so many actors and actresses bringing attention to the fires, the devastating fires in Australia. Well, it's an amazing story and a really important one and a reminder of the fragility of the climate right now. Mm -hmm. Who better to talk about that angle than Eric Rostin? He joins us from our green team. So tell us what's going on in Australia and the implications from a climate perspective. It's very difficult to dispel what's going on in the ground there and the incredible suffering. There have been two dozen deaths and communities have been uprooted and have uncertain, at least near-term futures. When you take a step back, you see that this is a part of a problem we've been talking about for a very long time, and that's Mm -hmm. climate change. And the fires aren't over, right? The fires of this scale, which basically have never been seen before, will go on for months. Uh, They've already been going on for three or four months, and Australia isn't even in its peak summer season yet. Uh, There's not a lot firefighters can do 
they can try to contain them, protect people and property, but expect this to be in the news for months. You know, it's interesting. There's a stat in this story that talks about that the bushfires that have burned a combined area twice the size of Switzerland, and as you mentioned, they're not done yet. So just to get an idea in terms of size and scope, it's staggering. Not only that, but think about last, I guess, uh, more than a year ago now, the California fires. And those absorbed so many people's attention, Mm -hmm. caused so much devastation in this country, And also, we spoke uh, last year in 2019 about terrible fires in Brazil. The Australian fires are more than twice as much as the California 2018 and the Brazil 2019 fires combined. And so how does this play into the climate picture? I mean, what are the the direct ties or even the indirect ties Mm -hmm. that we can draw from this devastation? It's pretty straightforward. The 2019 was the hottest year in Australia on record, which goes back about 140 years globally. It was also the driest year in Australia on record. And those are the two things you need to have a bad fire season. They knew months and months ago that it was going to be a terrible fire season just because of what 2019 was like in Australia, and also what the last 20 to 30 years have been like in Australia, which is, depending on what part of the country we're talking about, a 10 or 15 percent trend toward drier conditions. I think most of us, I think it's safe to say, who are you know reading about this and folks that are reporting on it are saying it's climate change. And yet, from what I understand within the country, that they're not necessarily saying it's climate change. Is that correct? The political leadership, the prime minister, has not embraced the vast element of these fires that is climate change. Uh, That is a kind of political behavior we've seen in in Australia before. We see it in the United States. We see it in in other countries. It's not – based on factually tenable positions. You cannot say that climate change is not happening and be correct. Uh, It is human-caused, and it's an increasingly important factor in everyday weather. What kills me about this story, and I just have to bring this up, because this story kicks off and talks about a report that was released back in July of 2007. I think about the New York Times that did reporting decades ago, right? Was it about climate change? And there were things that could have been done to prevent where we are today. So it's not like, oh my God, we all woke up and said, look what's happening to our climate. Like There has been a lot of research and reporting done for decades that this is where we were headed, mm-hmm. and here we are today. I think it's it's we is uh, is a is a word that you know I'm I'm serious yeah. uh, that really deserves some scrutiny here. Like we as a human community, led by scientists who study uh, what's going on, have known about this for a really long time. We people who get up and have families and have jobs and are just trying to get through the day. Do not know. It's right. it's an issue. Climate mm-hmm. change, it's an issue. It's complicated, or at least until the last few years, it's been complicated. Um, so I think there's a lot of people who are still waking up and realizing that this issue is not like any other issue. Right. Uh, there is a scale and an inevitability or, or, or inertia to this issue uh, that's different and worth noting. The problem is, and you guys pointed out, fossil fuels still make up, what, 85% mm-hmm. of our total energy consumption. That's not likely to change anytime soon. We hear about 
automakers and everybody working on it and other, you know, uh, companies working in terms of alternative energies. But that's the stark mm-hmm. reality of where we are. And unless we change that, and you guys point out in the story that there's the technology out there to do it. Mm-hmm. It's just not being either embraced or enacted fast enough. Yes and no. Like we do, we do have the tools and the story of the last 10 years has been absolutely breathtaking and fascinating to watch. And that's the 85% decline in the cost of solar power in the last 10 years, the 50% decline in the cost of wind power in the last 10 years. Uh, And there's there's even really hopeful signs in uh, in many nations uh, already, there's a really, I wish I had it, a really dramatic uh, depiction of uh, the United Kingdom's energy use historically. And the vast majority of it is coal. And so this chart is, uh, most of it is just black representing coal. Right. And then what you see in it over the last 20 years um, is this vast use of coal goes down to almost nothing as gas comes in, as renewables come in, as nuclear comes in. Uh, So Great Britain has done a really remarkable job in a very short period of time almost making coal disappear. And this is the country that led the – Uh, our foray into fossil fuels 250 years ago. That's Eric Rostin. And I have to say, Jason, you and I have been talking about this story all week long. It's devastating to see the fires and the magnitude of these fires uh, over in Australia. And the point is, and I I still am stuck on that that statistic, that these fires, um, a combined area twice the size of Switzerland, they're continuing to burn, but that's what we're talking about. They are huge. Well, and the implications, you know, you and I have been following this, as you say, all week, you know, both online, via social media, you know, you flagged a tweet that noted that a billion animals have been killed. You know, you've had a couple dozen people who've been killed in all this. And yet the ramifications go far beyond that in many ways in terms of the economy, but also the geography, the topography of this continent. This story, one line in it, you know, we talk about climate change and and we hear about academic studies and so on and so forth. But they say what's, what's crucial about what's happening here is that you're getting the real life feel for just how bad things might become because of climate change, right? It's front and center and you can't ignore it. So really, really troubling. And you do wonder if behavior does start to change with big examples like this. We'll see. So one story in the economics section that we wanted to bring to everybody's attention, it's about a country, we're talking about Venezuela, that has attracted a lot of U.S. dollars. You and I were talking about this in the newsroom. I know, because I read this story, or I read the headline, I was like, wait, what is happening here? Because dollars usually a pretty good thing for most people in the world, but leave it to Venezuela to figure out, you know, a way to make it a (laughs) negative. It's (laughs) it's unbelievable what's going on. So tell us about the excess of dollars and the consequences of that. Editor Christina Lindblad here. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, well, there's some good, uh, you know, uh, things that come from it, which is, I mean, basically people are gravitating to the dollar because, you know, the Bolivar just, you know, keeps like losing its value. It like basically depreciated almost 100% against the dollar last year. So, um, you know, everyone from like, you know, like hair cutters to, you know, people selling popsicles, you know, on the street now want to take dollars. The problem is, though, you cannot open dollar accounts in Venezuela. Banks are not allowed to. So there's nowhere to stash your money. Right. So we talked to this woman who's a, in an insurance business who <laughs> wraps her dollars in a plastic bag and tapes them to the inside of her toilet tank in her office. 
Um, so there's a big concern that this is going to spark another wave of crime like the one that Venezuela saw at the end of the 1990s, which is pretty severe. Help me understand something first. Let's talk about the bank situation. So like if I go to a bank in the U.S. and I have a foreign currency can't they change it and deposit it? Well, but nobody, but see, nobody wants to change their dollars into Bolivars because it's worth nothing. Yeah, because like you know, a week later, like right. you know, so you want to keep your dollars, but right. you know, in, in very, it's in very few countries uh, are banks really like in the business of opening foreign currency accounts. So people are hiding them truly, like as you said, under their toilet seat or in their mattresses, yeah. and you're talking. In some cases, thousands of dollars. Right. I mean, some banks are allowing people to put them in their safety deposit right. box. But imagine how you'd have to take out many, right, after a while if you're a business trying to shove yeah. dollars right, into right. your safety deposit box. Well, and you have people, you know, trying to get the dollars out of the country even. There are limits mm-hmm. on what you can do. So you have an anecdote in the story about someone who sent, I believe, his wife and daughter each with His 9, wife and mother, yeah. So $10,000, right, is the, is is the, the limit ceiling, that yeah. you can bring into the right. U.S. without declaring it to customs. So, right, so you went right under. Yeah, he has a bank account in Miami, but he wasn't able to, you know, wire the money in there. So, Christina, my question is, why doesn't Venezuela just adopt the U.S. dollar, especially since it's been, in some regards, a stable factor for the country, well, right, as a means of transaction. It, it has, but politically, it's a radioactive option. I mean, other countries ta- have done it, though. It's true, but I mean, the U.S. has sanctioned Venezuela. I mean, this these are this is basically like the U.S. is kind of you know diplomatically at war with this country. So it would be a, a loss of sovereignty, sovereignty that would be unacceptable to the Maduro regime. At the same time, you know. The, the government has has actually, I mean, Maduro has publicly said that, you know, dollar informal dollarization has been good for Venezuela, right. you know, because it has provided more price stability. It has, you know, there's an incentive now to save and invest that there doesn't exist with, with the Bolivares, right? So it's sort of, it will stay in a gray area. A lot of other countries actually tolerate this, you know, in there's countries in Africa and other places that, that haven't formally dollarized, but, you know, tolerate informal dollarization. There's a story in the economic section. It's about a country hoping to attract a sports industry. And Jason, it has to do with kind of making over its image. It's also about diversifying its economy. We're talking about... We're talking about Saudi Arabia. Politically, it's been in the news a lot over the last couple of years, not in a good way. Right. Uh, economically, it's one of the most fascinating stories across the globe. The de facto ruler, uh, Deputy Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, he is trying to change the culture and the economics of the place. Christina Lindblad, she oversees the economics coverage. This is a fascinating story. We were talking before we came on air. I really (laughs) love the richness of this, pun intended, because – this is a very tangible way that the kingdom is trying to move itself into the modern era. That's right. So they have a, a blueprint called Vision 2030 for how to diversify the economy. And part of it is to boost uh, kind of Western style entertainment. So everything from music concerts to sports events. And the sports events is something that they've been leaning very hard on in, in this last year. And Already in the year, we've had a very busy calendar. Well, in December, there was a big boxing match. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and then last weekend, it was the beginning of the Dakar rally, which Saudi Arabia is hosting for the first time. Um, and then there are going to be a series of um, soccer exhibition matches that they've cut a $130 million deal with Spain's uh, uh, federation, soccer federation for that. And that's Christina Lindblad talking about Venezuela and then Saudi Arabia. I really liked the Saudi Arabia did, story. I, I mean, in part because I've spent a fair amount of time in the UAE. Mm-hmm. I've spent some time in Qatar as well. Sort of seeing the transformation of those economies, what the rulers, and that's what they are, right. uh, of those countries in Emirates have been able to do attracting a lot of big name brands, and in this case, big brand athletes in some cases, and yet it's also a reminder that it's not so easy. Money doesn't solve every problem. Yeah, it's a really interesting story. BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, they have amassed trillions of dollars under management. Jason, they hold about 80% of all index money, and that's why they become known as the Big Three. They've got a nickname. That's what insiders (laughs) call it, but it's a real thing in a lot of ways, and owing a lot to the extraordinary power, at least on paper, they hold. Mm -hmm. But we want to look into what that power actually means, how yeah. they're using it, and how it might be differently construed. Annie Massa helped write this story. It's in this week's Business Week. She's in New York. Hi. Hi. How's it going? All right. This is really important for people to understand, in part because literally everyone listening to or watching this touches these investment firms in some way or another, I would imagine. Exactly. Index funds have just enjoyed explosive growth over the past decade or more, especially in the wake of the financial crisis, when investors have realized, hey, it makes a lot more sense in a lot of cases to just put my money in a passive index product and just track markets that way instead of paying for active management. And over time, you've concentrated a lot of first of all, assets, and second of all, uh, voting power then um, through the shares that they own in the big three that you mentioned. And we want to get into that concentrated power and this kind of common ownership by one entity or just a few entities. But remind us, I mean, when index funds kind of came on the scene, they've been around for a few decades already. We've all thought, what a great thing, right? Lower fees, this is good for investors. Yes, they are unquestionably a great innovation for investors. And investors who are trying to just make the smart financial decision may well decide it makes a lot more sense to own index funds than pick individual stocks or pay for someone to pick individual stocks for me. And then what happens is the in, the index fund firms like BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street have the voting rights for all the companies companies that are underlying uh, those index products. And as a result, they've amassed a ton of uh, voting power in each of these uh, companies that they own. Well, and throughout some some numbers, I thought this was really striking. Um, combined, the big three own, what, about 18% of Apple, 20% of Citigroup, 17% of B of A. I mean, you're talking about That's a big position. That's right. (laughs) So if you put together all of their ownership stakes, on average for S&P 500 companies, the big three own about 22% um, of those companies. Amazing. Now, what they say is that they're never going to vote as a block. They're not coordinating how they vote in matters like, um, you know, board elections or M&A deals. Um, But it's just a striking kind of uh, consolidation of power in some ways. And I think that what the academics and activists say on this is that you just have to watch that trajectory and monitor how that power is being used. They're also managing the retirements of a lot of the companies that they ultimately have stakes in, right? That's one thing that's come up. So you've, you've seen various academics come at this from different angles. And one question is, how are their, how are their um, interests and stewardship initiatives 
uh, clashing or do they clash? And that is one thing that's uh, come up in academic papers for sure. What the firms say is that they have these stewardship divisions, which are tasked with going out to individual companies and talking about any kind of issues that might affect their industry. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, think about it, right? So you have these big three, and they're managing their retirement plans. And at the same time, they hold a lot, a pretty significant position in those shares. So you do wonder, you know, might they possibly vote on matters that might appease management, right? Because they also have, they want their retirement business, right? I mean, this is all kind of complicated and and kind of interesting relationships. Yeah, there are some interesting nuances. And one thing that's kind of funny to consider is that academics come at it from two different ways in, in uh, right. these two different angles. So there's one camp that says, look at all of this voting power that BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street have amassed. Does that mean that they could one day sway votes one way or another in a way that's worrisome. Another camp says, look at how big these fund companies are and how many different individual stocks um, they hold. Right. And are they too hands off? Right. And that's what yeah. BlackRock's Barbara Novick has called the Goldilocks dilemma. Are they doing too much? Are they doing too little? Uh, I think BlackRock would argue they've got it just right, right. But you've got all kinds of angles. Well, and that too little piece, I have to say, when I was reading your story, that was the one that really jumped out to me and I thought was such an interesting and important twist on this, which is we worry so much, or we talk so much about like, they have this inordinate amount of power, they could make all these things happen. But they could essentially just allow things to happen because they are ultimately passive. So it's not just what they vote for, but it's what they might not vote for, just kind of hands off, right? And just be like, it's cool, keep doing your thing. And that's where you've seen some nonprofits and academics say they vote too much for the status quo at companies, or they couldn't possibly have the resources to devote to a stewardship division to really closely understand each individual company. The, you know, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street would push back against that and say that they've only been increasing their stewardship efforts. But that is one one camp of criticism. But and I do wonder about like, I guess what we're concerned about is whether or not BlackRock or State Street or Vanguard, you know, when it comes to matters such as an M&A deal, right, or executive compensation or so on and so forth. Or competition of the board or anything. Yeah. What, What kind of research has shown that you know, that they're voting more in favor of the companies and maybe against, you know, things that might hurt workers or employees. Like, what do we know? There, Yeah, there are different academic kind of studies of their voting records. And um, and actually, the same goes for nonprofits, too. There was a nonprofit called Majority Action that put out a study of um, climate change-related mm-hmm. shareholder uh, proposals specifically. Right. And that found that BlackRock and Vanguard tended to vote um, less in favor of shareholder proposals proposals related to the environment. Now, um, so so that's one camp of criticism, for example, that they're not doing, they're not voicing concern enough. They're not voting for active change enough. Um, what, what they would tell you is that they view it kind of as a situation where um, different shareholder proposals aren't always created equal, mm-hmm. um, but they... They've definitely come under attack for that. So how could this change? Like what's in the works either from a legislative perspective, from a Mm. regulatory perspective that could alter this picture at all? So regulators are definitely taking note of it. And right now it's pretty much in a monitoring phase. But the FTC, for example, has um, voiced that they are – 
taking a look at the issue, just trying to keep tabs on it and understand it as well as they can. And it's for sure a conversation that's going back and forth in Washington. But speaking of voices that have been concerned, Jack Bogle, shortly before he passed away, legendary when it came to index funds, right? Vanguard he essentially invented them. it. Yeah. Exactly. He had some words of caution. Yeah, you couldn't think of a bigger proponent for <laughs> exactly. index funds than Jack Bogle. But even he, before he passed away, voiced in the Wall Street Journal, he wrote this op-ed that said, I don't necessarily think that this concentration of power is in the best interest um, and that this has gone very far beyond um, you know, what he originally envisioned when he invented index funds. He came up with some, what he, some proposals, basically, and one of those was around uh, transparency right. and, and just the heightened responsibility that comes with this role that index fund firms now play. Well, and it does feel like that notion, I'm glad you said the word responsibility, because we are at this moment, I think, back mm-hmm. last year to the Business Roundtable and everything that's going on around big questions of who's responsible for what, who ultimately needs to benefit from certain things. Right. It can't just be for the bottom line. It can't just be for the benefit of shareholders. And it feels interesting, at least to me, that you know one of the voices sort of raising a lot of these big questions is Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, right? I mean, like, he's very much in the public conversation about all of these things mm-hmm. related to shareholders and employees and companies. Exactly. You can see that the index fund firms themselves have really been taking it seriously, especially as the scrutiny has grown, both from activists, from academia, um, even from, in some case, regulators. And Larry Fink, with his annual letters, has really tried to be um, a, a voice in that question of, how corporations should behave and what standards we should hold for them. And ultimately, who should be holding them accountable? And Mm -hmm. it goes back to the central premise of this, which is you have nominally passive investors who have huge stakes and and ultimately, at least on paper – a lot of power, whether they use it or whether they don't use it, becomes one of the biggest questions here. And I think one of the main takeaways is even if not every theory exactly fits together, there's a general anxiety yes. growing among all these different parties about what it just means for the market, what it means for corporate America. And I think there's a broader theme also going on. It happened. It's happening with technology. Just uh, you know, when there's a concentration of power, and we're seeing this certainly with the big three. And I think you guys give us a, a little bit of a history lesson, taking us back to Standard Oil, which I think is. Really Really important, you know, because John D had certainly a concentration of power when it came to Is the petroleum industry. John D? <laughs> yeah, we were like yeah, this. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like we are looking at this when there's too much power concentrated among one or just a handful of entities. Exactly. And we try to highlight that comparison. Big tech in a similar way yeah. has come has come out with so many innovations that have changed people's lives for the better and is now facing more scrutiny as a result of the power that they have. And I think you're seeing a very similar thing happen in finance. That's Annie Massa. Jason, you and I have been talking about this cover story all week long, this idea of concentrated shareholder power, about common ownership. It really speaks to, in many ways, kind of antitrust, perhaps, concerns. Uh, We get worried when there's too much power by any one entity or institution. And so we're looking at that. And what does it mean that BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street uh, hold about 80% of all index money? What kind of power does that give them? The story that keeps on giving, the latest chapter has to do with the great escape of former Nissan chairman Carlos Ghosn. It's not very difficult to come to conclusion, you're going to die in Japan or you're going to have to get out. This was not about justice. This was, as I felt, I was a hostage of a country 
that I have served for 17 years. And then that, of course, was Carlos Ghosn, the former head of Nissan and Renault. He held a lengthy and detailed press conference and Q&A with reporters in Beirut. Uh, let's get into it because at that press conference in Beirut was Bloomberg News senior reporter Matthew Campbell. He joins us uh, on the phone. First of all, uh, we were riveted. Jason talked about sitting in his car just listening to it. I had it downloaded so I could you know, listen to it on my way to the train and through my train ride. Set the scene for us. What was it like being in that room? Well, Carol, it was, uh, as you can imagine, a a bit of a zoo, Uh, quite a lot of reporters jostling to get in. Uh, There were many more on the street outside who hadn't been let in. Uh, This is the first time that uh, Ghosn had appeared publicly, to speak publicly, uh, since his arrest. And this is a a guy who, when he was at the top of Nissan and Renault for for 20 years, was really never far from a microphone. So he was... (laughs) clearly uh, ready, had a lot bottled up, ready to get off his chest. And so, Matt, knowing the story as well as you do, you and the team have done some phenomenal reporting there. What jumped out at you? What did you walk out of there thinking, oh, wow, I didn't expect that either in tone or in substance? Well, in in terms of the tone, Jason, I think I I was a bit surprised by uh, how digressive a lot of it was. It was not uh, perhaps the most organized uh, appearance. There was clearly a lot that uh, Ghosn wanted to cover, which is understandable. Uh, but if you hadn't followed this uh, very closely, and, and I, I have, but most people haven't, uh, you could have really lost track of what was going on. So I don't, I don't know if it was the most effective format for him to deliver his message. But uh, if his goal was to get back out there and get back into the news, he certainly has done that. Yeah, no doubt about it. But it was, it involved a screen behind him, right, and PowerPoint or slides and so on. I do wonder, too, Matt, if it answered some questions or really, you know, created a whole new round of questions. I think, Carol, it did answer some questions. Uh, We got from Gone uh, the names of some of the people he feels are behind uh, what he characterizes as a plot against him, uh, an effort to uh, end his, his tenure at Nissan to prevent uh, some of the plans he had for that company. Uh, we got uh, some interesting statements from him about why he came to Lebanon, uh, about how, what he sees going forward as, as a possible route to clearing his name and addressing these allegations. So there, were, there was some incremental news, but what we didn't have was a smoking gun or any, any truly dramatic revelation. You know, it was interesting, Matt, listening to it. And again, I didn't listen to it nearly as closely as you did there in the room. But it was notable how much he seemed to essentially say, look how poorly this company has done since I've been gone. And that tells you all you need to know about how important I was and maybe why they set me up in this way. Felt like he was looking for shareholder pressure here a little bit. Yes, certainly. And, and I think uh, he'll probably find some shareholder pressure. There's no question uh, Nissan and to some extent Renault uh, have been in a really tough spot uh, over the last year. I mean, how much of that is, is due to Gohn's absence versus uh, being due to just general headwinds in the industry, I think is, is quite debatable. But look, Gohn portrayed himself for a long time as the indispensable man, the person without whom neither of these companies could succeed. And uh, he he would argue that that his absence is proving his case. 
So now what? Like, I, I just wonder what's going to happen next uh, in this story, um, you know, in terms of the legality of it. Um, I know I think Japan wants to get him back in the country. So I don't know, Matt. You know this story inside and out like no other. So what happens next? Well, he is uh, now in Lebanon. He is a citizen of Lebanon. And, and as a matter of policy, Lebanon does not extradite citizens. Uh, so he is safe here, uh, at least as far as anyone knows. Uh, there is some talk uh, that he sort of sidestepped today, uh, but that I think we will see resurface that he could be tried in Lebanon or that he wants to be tried in Lebanon because uh, I think, you know, life as a fugitive is not what he's looking for. He wants to clear his name, mm-hmm. but he wants to do it in a, in a country where he deems uh, the trial fair. Uh, so that could be Lebanon or, or I suppose it could be elsewhere, but that that's going to be a big question in the next few weeks. And that's Matt Campbell joining us from Beirut, our man on the ground. He's so busy this week. What a tale. And he was in the room for that press conference. Mm -hmm. You and I were both riveted. You were literally like on the train listening on your mobile device. I was sitting in my car at the train station. I think I missed a train because he went on and on and on. Uh, What a scene. Yeah, absolutely. And the story isn't over. It is about, for him, saving his legacy. But the charges are still out there. There's so much still yet to be known. Matt Campbell's going to be all over it, but we'll get the latest from him. According to one source, Catholic church leaders paid out about $750 million from the early 1980s through 2002. And yet, Jason, as this story in the magazine explores, America's Catholic churches are shifting assets and they're filing for Chapter 11. It's all about avoiding uh, the paying out of more money to settle sex abuse claims. It is an incredibly disturbing story, but a very, very important Mm -hmm. one and really takes us into the inner workings of the church and the business-like way that they have approached this. Editor Dan Ferrara joins us. He worked on this story very closely. It took a long time to sort of get all this reporting out. Uh, Josh Saul wrote this story. Uh, Dan, take us in here and help us understand the sort of broad strokes before we dive into the details. Well, the churches, um, they uh, they declare bankruptcy and it's because sex abuse claims are going to overwhelm them, right? Um and, and declaring bankruptcy is probably the appropriate thing to do. They're, they're, the way they explain it is like if we declare bankruptcy, it creates an order to the process. Uh, imagine if they didn't do that and then the first the first big claim could wipe them out and no other victims could get – would have access to any money. Right. So that, that makes sense on that level. They do declare bankruptcy. What the story is also examining, however, is – Steps that precede the bankruptcy and that the church says are not about anticipating the bankruptcy, but steps that precede the bankruptcy, which which diminish the size of the church's estate. So the bankruptcy will typically there's there's no there's no hard and fast rule. But if a bank if a, say a bankruptcy ends up um, if, if sex abuse victims end up splitting half the church's remaining estate. Um, then the church has a, has a, has an interest in in minimizing the size of that estate. Dan, and this is what's interesting. And I think most people listening, I think about you know corporate America, right? You right. know, people file you know Chapter Eleven mm-hmm. so that there is an order to the process, right. and so that you know creditors are or as many creditors are given you know a bite of the pie that's right. And these, left sex, out. these victims, in fact, are creditors. That's the, correct. That's their that's their status, so their I, legal status. So we understand that. But as this story so well you know points out that there's two. 
two two points to it. And the, the big thing is these assets that are transferred and mm-hmm. reclassified. And you talk about these archdioceses, right, that move these assets to parishes. And right. so that money is no longer part of that settlement pool. Right. The, the, it's legal. Yep. Yep. But tell us a little bit more about that. It's legal, but it is it is in fact what is in dispute in bankruptcy proceedings. Okay. Like the churches will say that certain assets like um, funds of money um, – Real estate is the single largest one. So it's, well, that doesn't actually belong to the archdiocese. That belongs to the individual parishes, and therefore it's not legitimately part of the estate. Well, in a lot of instances, the money was moved from the archdiocese to the individual parishes in anticipation of – or. In, preceding the bankruptcy. Right, and that's right. the point so then in terms the lo- of the timing. Right. It used to be part of the archdiocese, right. and then it's moved off So the, the lawyers are trying to, representing the victims, are trying to drag those same properties back into the archdiocese estate. Because the lawyers on the other side are essentially arguing that the church did this in anticipation of these very lawsuits and are seeking to minimize right. the estate. They're definitely seeking – yes, that's that's definitely an argument that they're making. And whether or not they say you did it in anticipation of it, they are saying like let's be realistic about, about who actually controls yes. these things. So they may be in the name of the parish, but if the archdiocese has, has control – then they say that that represents um, ownership. I feel like, you know, so many things were going through my head when I was reading the story. I was thinking about, you know, a couple that gets divorced, right? And, you know, one of the partners moves assets before they right. start to go through divorce proceedings so that that's not considered part of the marital assets. Like it's, it almost feels like to that extent to, to you know. That's know an analogy similar. that one yeah. of the, one of the – one of the victims used, right? Because it happened in his own life. Well, there's one stat in the story, and I think Bloomberg Businessweek actually did a review of court filings by lawyers for churches, Catholic churches and victims over the past 15 years. It shows that the U.S. Catholic Church has shielded more than $2 billion in assets from abuse victims in bankruptcies using these methods. So now lawyers are going after that or tell us like what's what's well, happening it happens now. on on a case by case basis okay. an archdiocese by archdiocese basis like how often is it happening is it a lot of archdioceses that are doing this well i think the story says that's that i think a half dozen or seven states had sort of an open window like there's there's not a statute of limitations applying to sex clergy abuse cases more recently a number of states have 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 removed the statute of limitations and um, New York State, for example, did it mm-hmm. in last summer. Right. And the churches, uh, a number of churches immediately filed bankruptcy for like, oh, this is coming. Bankruptcy is, is, the, only, is the only option at that point. Many of those state, many of those archdioceses had prior to that reclassified assets, reclassified and reassigned assets. So Dan, I want to talk about a, a key element of this story, which is a thread that actually pulls through the entire abuse scandal, which is sort of who knew what when in, mm-hmm. in many cases and who is ultimately implicated in the decision-making, setting aside the culpability around the actual abuse and the cover-up of abuse. This story documents some very senior church officials all the way up to the Vatican mm-hmm. who essentially were involved in making these decisions. That seems like a key part of this piece. The decisions around bankruptcy yes. and around asset reallocation. There's a dispute – Lawyers for the victims say that the lawyers for the church are saying we we we'd like to we whatever whatever they're talking about. Well, we'd let, we'll have to run that past the bishop, right. or we'll have to run that up up to the Vatican. And the Vatican is saying 
this stuff is all done at a local level. It's right. not us. That's editor Dan Farrar talking about uh, Josh Saul's story. And Jason, this is another one that has really stuck with us throughout the week. Absolutely. I mean, it's hard to get through it in mm-hmm. some ways, especially if you have any association with the Catholic Church. It's very clinical what they have done, candidly, uh, yeah. in terms of shifting assets. And apparently order- legal legal as far as we know. Uh, There are lawsuits ongoing in Mm -hmm. a number of jurisdictions as Josh and Dan lay out essentially saying you have hidden money that should be paid out to victims of this abuse that was perpetrated over decades. Uh, It's a really important story. It's not been told to this point, uh, and I think will change and move the conversation and and hopefully uh, bring some different scrutiny to, to what's going on. Absolutely. It's a nice tune to walk us into the next segment. Jesse Westbrook oversees our financial regulations coverage at Bloomberg. He joins us on the phone from our D.C. Bureau. And this is a really important story, though. And kudos to you and your team for putting this out there. Help us understand what went on with private equity companies or private equity-backed companies uh, buying ads amid this uh, discussion around drug or around uh, medical billing. Yeah, so so the backdrop of this, Jason, is surprise medical billing. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but if you have an emergency, you go to the doctor, you, you may have situations at the hospital where all the doctors who treat you aren't actually covered by your insurance. There's no transparency into this. You have no idea. Um, so often, or, or not often, but what can happen is you get a $10,000 bill in the mail that your insurer won't cover, and you're on the hook to pay it. Um, so everyone agrees in Washington that this is you know, a huge injustice, huge problem, but it turns out that a couple of powerful Wall Street companies, Blackstone and KKR, own companies that, are, that do this, um, and they are you know, very, have a big stake in it not happening. So they funded this massive ad campaign, more than $50 million spent last year. It was a dark money campaign, which is a term we use down here in Washington, where the people paying for a campaign don't disclose that they're paying for it. Um, They sort of come under innocuous names of of made-up groups. In this case, the group was called Dr. Patient Unity. Um, So this irritated a lot of lawmakers, and that's sort of where we are now. It also irritated the White House, which, you know, really rebuked the private equity firms over this. Well, there's a lot at stake, right, for Blackstone and KKR. Big time. Yeah, I mean, tons of money. They, they, they bought these companies for a combined valuation of like $16 billion. So if those investments go south, um, it, it would not be good for Blackstone and KKR. Well, and what I find so remarkable about this, Jesse, going back to something you said just a few minutes ago, is everyone in Washington agrees. How often do you ever, <laughs> ever say that at this point? And when you and I were talking about this earlier, I mean, David Weston made this point, too, that this is not just Democrats running for president who are like, oh, private equity, you guys are the worst. This is the administration, the Republican administration, and key Republicans in Congress who are saying, this is not good and it's not right. Well, that's, that's, that's fascinating that you bring that up, because I think that you look, I mean, there, there is obviously 
among Demo- progressive Democrats. They want to make a boogeyman out of everything associated with Wall Street. And that actually makes probably a lot of people cynical about some of the arguments. It's like, oh, they're just going after Wall Street again. Right. That obviously resonated a lot after the financial crisis. But, you know, that, that, that song is getting a little old. Um, but what's interesting about this is, you know, sort of private equity firms, they sort of can't get out of their own way. I mean, they're obviously rich and powerful, but you're you're opening yourself up to obvious criticism by, you know, profiting in this way. I mean, I'm not going to stand here and say whether it's right or wrong, but you can see why it irritates people. Um, so for an industry that is in the crosshairs, principally with progressive Democrats, you'd think that you would want to avoid sort of bringing more pain onto yourself by getting into the, the the surprise medical billing racket. That's Jesse Westbrook, our financial regulation team leader at Bloomberg News, joining us from Washington. And this story, it was among the most read on the Bloomberg terminal. And it really speaks to, and something that's come up on the campaign trail, the presidential campaign trail, about private equity. It's become such a big force when it comes to the financial and investment markets and arena. And there's concerns about their lack of transparency. And that's kind of what this speaks to. Well, it's become important in politics and finance, also important for consumers. And that is what really brings this story home. We're talking about surprise medical billing. These are bills that go to you and me, to everyday people, and understanding where the money is coming from, but also understanding where the money is coming from, trying to influence legislators, lawmakers, Mm -hmm. in terms of changing the law, in terms of changing the regulations. And let me tell you, we're just getting started in 2020 in terms of the political scrutiny around private equity. And what's interesting about this story is it seems like there are politicians on both sides of the aisle that agree that this is egregious, that it's happening in terms of, you know, uh, patients, consumers being billed uh, when they didn't expect it, and yet they still haven't been able to get anything done. Well, as we joked with Jesse Westbrook, (laughs) simply saying the phrase, everyone in Washington agrees, you sort of stop right there and say, wait, what? (laughs) Yeah, not exactly. So we hear increasingly how everyone is spending on experiences, travel specifically. So if you're wondering where to go, uh, we've got the guide for you. We absolutely do. And a lot of different places to go, maybe some off the beaten path, maybe some not as far away as you think. Nikki Eckstein is here with us. She put it together. She does it every year. So let's start there. How do you even tackle a project like this? This is not something you can rush through deadlines. Oh, definitely not. This is a year-long project. As soon as this one goes to bed, I start on the next year's version. So I'm already working on 2021. This is, you know, all year long. We're trawling for hotel news, culture news, museum openings, exciting different developments that are coming on the horizon. And then we're pairing that with data insights from Google, from our trusted travel experts around the world to put together an authoritative guide that tells you not only when, where to go, but when to go and why. That's what I love about this. But what I also love is that you respect kind of established places that maybe have a new twist on them, but you also embrace the new. Absolutely. There's nothing to say that we can't go back to Paris every year and love it. Right. I, we can go, we can go back jaded. to Paris every year. <laughs> right. Totally, totally. But let's go now. For the record, Paris is not on this year's list. It was on last year's list. But a classic that's on this year's list, I would say, is Budapest. And I think most people that think about Budapest think about going on a river cruise. Mm-hmm. And so this year we're saying... Don't cruise there. Do a land trip. The hotels that are opening in the city the city center are really spectacular and pushing Budapest into a new level of luxury. There's one that's called the Matilde Palace being opened by Luxury Collection that is literally the city's answer to Buckingham Palace. So staying in Budapest is suddenly going to become very posh where before it was a little bit less so. 
All right, so let's stay in Europe. You also mentioned Northern Italy. Again, mm-hmm. not that off the beaten path, but you have a little bit of a twist here. Well, sure. I think Italy has been trend. I mean, Italy is always trending. Let's sure. not lie. But Southern Italy in particular has been very buzzy for the last few years. We're saying go north. We're saying do the Dolomites, the mountains that hug the Austrian border. We're saying do Milan, a city that people go to for work, but never really like put it on their bucket mm. list per se. It's becoming a really vibrant city with art and galleries beyond the fashion that you already know and love. We're also saying spend more time on spas, health, wellness, hiking in this northern region, and then eat really well because (laughs) Chef Massimo Bottura and his wife, Lara, who run the number one restaurant in the world, they have opened a hotel in the countryside outside of Modena, and it is Number one on my bucket. It I sounds just magical. saw that. It was on 60 Minutes just a, a couple weeks ago. Oh, they had an right. interview with him. Right. It was amazing. It looks and incredible. They are, Plus, I know the them Olympics personally, and they are the most wonderful hosts that you could really? ever imagine. So right. you must. Okay. Um, I thought what was interesting, too, is that there were several references to James Bond. And I think one of them was the Ionian Islands. I think it was either estates or stuff that has been in that yeah. have been in Bond movies. Absolutely. So the Ionian Islands are not necessarily on everyone's radar. People go to Mykonos and Santorini, which are in a different island chain in Greece. However, Ever, we say that the Ionian Islands are more interesting and, and better in some ways because they're less crowded. Mykonos and Santorini have gotten famously very, very crowded during peak seasons. They also suffer from something called the Melteme, which is seasonal winds. In the Ionian Islands, you get more consistently better, more pleasant weather. And then you can stay in places like villas and estates where so Bond nice. movies have been shot, actually. Now you can rent them through agencies like Red Savannah. That's fun. Yeah, yeah. so for the record, it was Hector Gonzalez's mansion in For Your Eyes Only. For the it was. Heavy, right? For the heavy-duty Bond fans. <laughs> See, I'm, uh, I'm not a heavy-duty <laughs> Bond fan, but I can tell you Jamaica, yes. where well, the new Bond movie is being shot, the one that's coming out in April, um, this one, this is like a place where a lot of jo- sorry, where a lot of Bond movies in the past have been shot, and again now with the release in April of um, No Time, no time, to, time die. to Die. Um, this is also where Live and Let Die was shot, so there's some like interesting connections yeah. between those two movies, and some of the hotels are being renovated where the movies were shot in the past, so it's exciting there. Talk too. to us a little bit more about the beaches. That's what I love, and I thought what was interesting was Mozambique. Oh, Mozambique is super high on my wish list all of a sudden. It just yeah. catapulted there for 2020 thanks to a resort that's opening that is going to be, I forgive me in advance for this price tag, it will be $5,500 a night. We will all go bankrupt staying there. No, but I, I will not go there. It's called Kisawa. Oh, I thought you'd be like, I won't go bankrupt. I was like, what? hold on a second. You can go, you can tack it onto a safari for one or two nights. Consider yourself yeah. robbed and bankrupt, but loving every second. Right. Place Who needs to called, pay the mortgage? I know. Kisawa Reserve, they're actually running a, an eco center for biologists to come and study marine wildlife Very cool. and sustainability. So your money will go to a good cause. Talk to us about the Riviera Nayarit. Uh, that was one that uh, really struck me again. Yeah, another, totally. Another beach, right? Yes. So everybody Mexico. knows everybody knows Cabo. Yeah. Right. Everybody knows Cancun and Tulum. So Riviera Nayarit is the next, or let's say the fourth corner in that square. So um, west coast. It's west coast, set a little south of Cabo. If if you could draw kind of a straight line, it's it doesn't really work that way, but let's pretend it does. Right. Um, it's kind of close to Puerto Vallarta. Right. And there's a very very large multi-use development. So part condos, residences, golf, all of that stuff that is christening the destination as Riviera Nayarit to become the next big thing. And there are a, a number, quite a large number of 
luxury hotels going in, including a Rosewood, a one and only, Auberge, brands that are destinations unto themselves. So nice. Um, hey, talk to us a little bit about if you're interested in maybe checking out some ruins, right? There's a few places to go. Oh, sure. Absolutely. So I'm really excited. This is not what you'll expect me to say, but Guatemala. I- um, Didn't see that coming. <laughs> no. no. So Guatemala has some ancient ruins. I mean, we know that Central America, Mexico, all the all way down to South America there is full of ancient ruins. And Guatemala is no exception. What's interesting is that the ruins there are still in the process of being excavated. After about 20 years of progress, they're really cool to see now. But you can go and visit with the archaeologists. That are still and they're alive. huge, right? They're huge. I mean, we're talking, Tikal is like the biggest known ruin around there. Right. And the ruins that are being excavated now are significantly larger. Yeah. And Cairo uh, is on the list as well for ruins. And a new museum, I believe, opening up, much anticipated. This is the Grand Egyptian Museum. Yes, the gem, if you will. Um, the Grand Egyptian Museum has been many years in the making. It has been chronically delayed, but it is finally, truly opening. And this is something that travelers have been waiting with bated breath. People who are interested in antiquities will be so relieved to hear that Cairo's museums, which previously were not air conditioned, did not house the entire collections. All of those problems are now being solved as these beautiful world treasures are being put into a world-class space. All right. I want to talk a little bit about the United States stuff, a little bit closer to home, national parks, but also the Finger Lakes right up the road from us, essentially. Stunning. Stunning. It's an easy drive from New York City. And, you know, we think about the Hamptons, we think about the Hudson Valley. I say think about the Finger Lakes this year. There are more than 100 wineries in the wine is actually good, good enough to get James Beard Award nominations, which is like the Oscars of the food world. Right. And um, not just that, but there's some really beautiful hotels that are opening up, some by Brooklyn-based designers, which give it a cool edge that it didn't previously have. Uh, And out west... Start with Yosemite. Yosemite. I get asked constantly, I'm going to Yosemite, where do I stay? (laughs) And I always draw a blank, not because I can't think of a place, but because they really don't exist. It's this weird phenomenon. And part of it is- But that's what's nice about it, right? Well, you can't develop inside of national parks for a reason. Right. But the problem is that then they become very congested because people have to drive from wherever they're staying a few hours away. And the parks become congested in the middle of the day because everyone drove in to see the thing that they wanted to see. Right. Now you can stay overnight in nice places right on the border of the park and get in before everyone else, before all the traffic clogs it up. Is it RVs though? Is it RVs? No. What are you staying in? It's better. It's converted airstreams with a place called Auto Camp. And they've actually done a really nice job of making the inside feel pretty plush. And then there's a couple of other ones. Under Canvas does these really cool tents that are like really properly serviced like a real hotel. Glamping. Glamping. But like really, like people say glamping sometimes and it's pretty basic. This is legit. All right. Talk to me about West Hollywood. I love this. I love (laughs) Los Angeles. It's a really cool, obviously, like sort of corner of the city. So much going on there. It's, what, less than two square miles of a neighborhood, and it's just full of so many delightful things to do and see, and we decided to christen it all on its own as a place to go. That's partially because so many hotels are opening there. We've got the one hotel. We've got an addition. Um, And then there's the Michelin Guide, which obviously is a wonderful authority for where to eat, has actually paid much closer attention in the last year to West Hollywood, doing out a pair of Michelin stars to Sushi Ginza Onodera, if that's your scene. Right. 
there's also a lot of stuff happening kind of on the fringes of the neighborhood. The Academy of Motion Pictures right. Museum is finally opening. So you can really base yourself in West Hollywood and never go more than a mile radius and, and have an awesome trip. Cool. I know I need a little nature, I think Me is too. what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. Good stuff. <laughs> All right. Nikki Eckstein, great to see you. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. And that wraps up Bloomberg Business Week's weekend podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday now from 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live during that time, get our daily podcast for your ride home or whenever you want to listen and get that wherever you download your podcast. And Jason, of course, now you can also watch our radio show, our daily radio show live on YouTube. Just go to YouTube and search on Bloomberg Global News. Talking global domination (laughs) here, Carol. You can get this week's edition of the magazine on newsstands now. The world is ours. We'll be back next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg.